Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing wellbeing information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Lewis Donald. Lewis is an executive leader at Stowe Valley Multi-Academy Trust, leading safeguarding across nine schools and six early years settings as the director of safeguarding. Within this role, Lewis provides consultancy and support to other multi-academy trusts and local authorities, including the delivery of the NSPCC accredited training, which is the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children training, quality assurance and safeguarding improvement services. In 2018, Lewis was accredited by the Nottinghamshire Safeguarding Children, sorry, In 2018, Lewis was accredited by the Nottinghamshire Safeguarding Children Board as an advanced designated safeguarding lead and sat on the Nottinghamshire Violent Crime Reduction Group. Lewis supported the work of the DfE through the COVID-19 pandemic, advising on the impact and effectiveness of the government's safeguarding strategy. He's passionate about safeguarding and maximising the effectiveness of senior leaders in education by taking a common sense approach to effective and robust strategic leadership. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, what a nice introduction. I, I felt I was yeah. the starting of This Is Your Life. But there we go. So, no, thank you for having me, Maria. Yeah. It's, it's really great to be able to speak to you. Yeah, you're very welcome. And uh, a lot of expertise and experience in safeguarding. And for people, we have a lot of listeners from around the world. So just to start to define our terms for people who might not be familiar with that term, what is safeguarding and what does it mean in the context of education? Well, safeguarding is a general term when we're talking about safeguarding within education. It's all about promoting the best possible outcomes for children and young people. It's the proactive things that we as school leaders, school teachers, or just anyone that works in and around the kind of sector of of children. It's all about that proactive stuff. What can we do to make sure that children can flourish in our settings, to make sure that they get those best possible outcomes to kind of work through, be that their time with us in schooling or just generally in and around the community. It's a really, really key feature of education that's becoming more and more um, at the front of our conversations, especially as we work through the pandemic that we are at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what has changed in safeguarding as as a result of the pandemic? So safeguarding in the way that uh, school staff and school leaders and and kind of work to to safeguard children has changed significantly. Um, It's always evolving safeguarding. It's always kind of changing in the way that we um, offer support and intervention or kind of work to meet different elements of compliance. But one of the key things that's changed, especially as we think more about the pandemic, is how we're actually providing that intervention to children and young people within schools. A phrase that we often use when discussing the changes to safeguarding is we say that we're we're almost now safeguarding from the front door, whereas traditionally we would be safeguarding within a classroom. We would be looking for opportunities to provide early intervention or to provide that level of support in and around the school corridors or on the school playground. Where we are now as we kind of work through these these lockdown periods and periods of remote learning is that we are very much safeguarding from the front door. And that comes in a range of different ways. We literally do have staff on the front door providing food packages, providing that kind of eyes on support for our most vulnerable children. But we're also safeguarding from the front door in a different way in the in the context of uh, safeguarding through our remote contact. 
with young people. We've recognised that actually the lockdown and the pandemic has brought about a range of different challenges for children and young people. And that remote aspect of working is a significant change in our own uh, recognition of potential harm for young people. One of the key things that, that we've had to kind of really shift our focus towards is supporting children and young people with their use of online devices. We've recognised a lot, and this is a national picture, that all of a sudden children and young people are being um, left alone, not, not in, a, in a negative way, just left alone through the nature mm. of mum, dad, uh, the parents, guardians, whoever looking after them at home, they're doing their own working from home. So yeah. children are very much all of a sudden left with devices in a completely unmoderated way. And that in itself is bringing about a challenge it's bringing about a challenge because we're seeing an increase nationally in the amount of harm that uh, young people and children are facing online but it also changes our own understanding around our safeguarding curriculum what we need to teach and uh, talk to young people about and so in terms of what's changed for safeguarding kind of going back to your original question mm. a lot's changed in a range of different areas we've changed the way we are safeguarding we've changed the way that we are meeting compliance so there's we're, we're constantly kind of meeting the, the latest requirements of ever-changing government guidance. But then finally, we're also changing the way that we educate and support our young people, equipping them for this new way of working, which for school leaders is, is a challenge, but it's also a, a really positive um, outcome of this lockdown is that we're recognising now that actually we don't need to stand in front of the classroom and um, talk about kind of teaching safeguarding in the traditional ways. We now know we can do it in so many other different ways. Um, and this interactive way of working is a really good opportunity to uh, kind of start new conversations with young people and educate them that little bit more about the risks of the online world. You mentioned the, the big C word, compliance. <laughs> How do you balance compliance and supporting staff? Because in, in the work I do, I, I, I see an ever-increasing kind of spectrum of jobs that, that schools are required to do. And where is that line between compliance and, you know, the core business of teaching and supporting staff? You know, it's an I'm aware that's a big question. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's a, it's a really important question, right? Because actually the, meeting compliance and being generally broadly speaking compliant has been, a, I, I imagine, a feature of every senior leadership meeting up and down the country mm. over the last kind of 12 months. But actually what what especially focusing in on safeguarding compliance there, we know that the government guidance is going to change regularly. And actually, we need to recognise, especially in, in uh, leadership roles where we're supporting others in doing that job and doing the work to become compliant, we need to recognise that actually it's really important that that role of interpreting the guidance, the role of kind of understanding what's expected is really clearly communicated out to, in my case, designated safeguarding leads to make sure that wherever possible, we can remove those pressures from those operational leaders on the ground. So in really kind of basic terms, what that means for me is, it's about, it's me understanding what that latest change to government guidance is, interpreting it in such a way that we can then disseminate it out to schools in a way that's easily understandable and also easily implemented. Mm. So in terms of how you make, how, how that juggling act looks, I would be lying to you if I said that over the past 12 months, it hasn't been incredibly difficult to maintain not just compliance, but also excellence in terms of safeguarding practice in schools. But 
what it's also highlighted that challenge is, is the great work that school leaders and school teachers and everyone working in schools have done to contribute their own little bit towards making sure that, um, as, as we said at the beginning, we've adapted the way we're safeguarding to maintain that high standard, but also kind of meet the these new requirements and these new expectations that are placed on us by central government and everyone else that's uh, wishes to contribute in that area. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> uh, that feels like a safe place to stay away from then no I'm happy to go there what what do you feel that there's too much uh input from from external agencies what what do you think is the problem there do you know what actually when uh, I'm probably wrong to that because I think that on the contrary actually what what this period has shown us is that the working relationships between schools and multi-agency partners such as uh, the local authority social services the police in some ways it's never been stronger because actually we've we've all really had to kind of be on the cold front if you will and and really pulling together to make sure that we can all work together to provide the same level of service but in a completely different way so the guidance from the government is uh, at times heavy but what that guidance is is it's just that it's guidance and i think that some of our best leaders uh, at all levels across the the education sector are those that, as I said a moment ago, interpret the guidance and then make it really accessible and easy for leaders to interpret and implement. And then when they've got that clear kind of uh, understanding of what's expected on them, we can then build on those relationships with multi-agency partners so we can do our bit to support them in, in their work. And a good example of that is, as I mentioned a moment ago, with this idea of supporting social services with home visits and delivering food parcels. Because equally, when we're supporting social services, actually, we've now got those closer relationships. And certainly in some of our schools, we're seeing these really positive relationships developing between local social work uh, teams and our local pastoral teams because they're working so much close together. They're sharing information. They're sharing kind of um, different practices and exposing our designated safeguard in these new ways of working. And that's having a really positive impact on not just our DSLs with their own kind of approach to adapting their practice, but also to the young people that they're supporting within the community. Mm. I just want to pick up on one term you've used a couple of times is the DSL, the designated safeguard lead. What what do you mean? Is is that who is that person? So the designated safeguarding lead is the senior leader within the school who has overall strategic responsibility for safeguarding uh, within the sector. And and whilst that's a quite a grandiose title really for them, I think actually what what we know is that the DSL does an incredible job wherever they are because their role on a day-to-day level is to analyze the concerns that have been presented to them make really difficult decisions at times about um, the kind of intervention that's provided to children and young people about whether or not a referral is made into an external partner but also at the same time advocating for young people mm-hmm. and sharing the message and the importance of safeguarding within that school community it's a really really big role yeah yeah, and and you touched on something about how how closely now pastoral teams in schools are working with, say, social working teams, and of course that obviously sounds great. But from colleagues that I'm working with in schools, they're really feeling the effect of that at times, like really feeling the burden of just the the sadness or the you know just how difficult some of these situations are that they're they're dealing with and i i just wonder if you have an insight into how do we help 
deal with this kind of emotional fallout from dealing with these issues? And are pastoral teams sufficiently trained or, or, or are we expecting too much of them in this area? Do, do you know what? I think I think you you hit a really good point there about actually there's a need to recognise what those what that new kind of workload looks like and how it's changed. I think some of the um, some of the best kind of supportive measures that can be put in place is a really clear understanding by school leaders in as to what those demands actually look like, because where there's an actual understanding of what that workload looks like and what the demands are that our DSLs and our pastoral teams are facing, it's a really good kind of starting point to start to put in place uh, effective supervision systems where our DSLs and our pastoral teams can really kind of take a step away from that, as you say, really kind of challenging frontline work, take that step back and almost have that opportunity to reflect, be that with colleagues or with somebody externally supervising them, just that place for them to kind of talk through any challenging cases that they may be working through, but also to get that kind of ratification that they're doing a really good job, which is human instinct that we we need and, and especially deserve in, in, in these times more than ever. So in terms of an insight into what we can do to support school leaders, I think we've safeguarded more than anything. Safeguarding is brilliant because it gives us data and it can give us some really kind of at times uh, worrying data that tells us about an increase in concerns or a kind of drop off in communication. And, and But then also we need to make sure we're using that kind of information, that data, that staff voice, that understanding of really what is going on to inform our supportive measures for our DSLs and our pastoral teams. A really good example of, of this would be that in, in one of our schools, um, we've got a DSL that is going out and just through the nature of the context that they operate in, are working incredibly hard with their teams to provide intensive support to um, our most vulnerable children. And actually what the head teacher's done there is recognise that those members of staff are almost working at, at kind of 100 miles an hour and, and there needs to be an understanding there that we almost at times just need to slow everything right down, pull people in and give them that space to talk through what they work through. So they're not going home, bottling it up um, and, and kind of getting building their own anxieties in that area as well, which, I mean, from, from reading your book only uh, within the past couple of weeks, there's, there's some tips in there that, that certainly <laughs> a lot of DSLs around the country would benefit from because DSLs do at times have sleepless nights. I mean, the, the role of the DSL when they're making these difficult decisions about at times significantly traumatic and life-changing events, yeah. there is there needs to be an acceptance by anyone that's line managing or supervising or just supporting uh, those people within the education sector that are safeguarding children that there is levels of anxiety that can build up in that area and um certainly for me I, I took uh, I took great things from just being able to slow everything down kind of understand what it is you work through what who it is you're supporting and yeah just slowing things down sometimes really and just kind of getting a feel for what really is going on and then the intervention and the support can be far more relevant and far more purposeful when we actually have a real understanding instead of just at times, um, assuming we know what's going on. Mm, mm. And, well, supervision is a model that's used across other therapeutic um, settings that we don't often see in schools. I don't know, um, I don't have as much experience in secondary schools as I do in, in primary schools, but supervision is an opportunity to talk through what you've experienced. Is that something that is widely offered? 
It's becoming more and more common within school, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that um, myself and uh, a lot of safeguarding leaders nationally are really pushing for supervision to become a theme in our new statutory guidance, keeping children safe in education when that updates itself. Because whilst it's recently recently dropped into the new offset framework and supervision is mentioned there, that's that's all well and good. But we need to make sure that actually schools are providing not just supervision for the sake of supervision, but are providing meaningful supervision as well. And that is something that's new for education. It's the system's clinical supervision in safeguarding has been a feature of social care practice for many, many years. And it's now really, really successful in terms of um, reflecting on casework, looking for opportunities to learn, but also offloading any of those kind of stresses and anxieties that we just mentioned Mm. and there is a need for that in schools especially Mm. now more than ever where as we've said we're we're seeing these real increases in demand um, on our school staff to provide additional levels of intervention and support so getting that supervision framework right to make sure that staff have got that space to talk is is really really important And it is only going to become more important as we move back into education, we get children back in the classroom and we start to unpick some of the um, adverse experiences that our young people and children have experienced over the the pandemic that we've all worked through. Mm. What would you say to the to the teacher, the the, the DSL, who who is maybe feeling a bit apprehensive about what they might be facing as as more children come back into school? What would you advise them to do if supervision isn't available to them? I think that um, there's there's some really, really good tools and networking opportunities within the safeguarding world. And it's important for a DSL to remember that they, they're never alone. And I know that sounds quite cliche, but they're certainly not. They All schools will operate within a local authority um, area or a multi-academy trust. So there's, there's always that opportunity to reach out into your local authority and try to identify different opportunities to join, uh, say, a, a regional DSL network group, which is something I'm a, a big advocate for, or um, that opportunity just to kind of discuss and share different experiences. I think some of the best relationships that uh, DSLs have, or actually, if I may, to take a step back from that, who who I recognise in terms of DSLs that are the most risk of that almost feeling of isolation that you just discussed there, are those that are in those little, beautiful, leafy primary schools where they work in small schools, but they are still working to the same level of expectation as our largest schools in the country. So it's those DSLs that need to kind of be able to have that space to reach out and as I say using your local authorities to identify who your safeguarding partners are identifying where and when your local DSL networks are to start to form those professional relationships where you can almost have a a safe element of supervision by just sharing your own experiences in a safe way to kind of reflect and listen and learn to what other people are doing in different schools it's the most basic form of CPD but at the same time, it's it's also in some ways the most basic form of of getting that almost informal supervision that um, when formal supervised supervision isn't there, just talking um, and sharing and most certainly never bottling up or getting to a point where you are feeling, as you're describing, in some ways isolated. Because certainly when we think about safeguarding, it's all about working together. We work together with our multi-agency partners to safeguard children, but it's also really important that as DSLs or school leaders, we work together to safeguard ourselves as well. 
Mm, mm, excellent point. And you mentioned another scary word in, in there, Lewis, <laughs> about the Ofsted framework. What's that looking like now as, as inspections are increasingly looming on the horizons? What's, what's that likely to look like? So the, the Ofsted framework um, that was launched back in 2018 was a significant change from the, the frameworks before because it moved away from this idea of looking at uh, school results and looking at data and almost some some would argue they won't, but some would say that some inspectors may have already formed an opinion before they arrived at school. Whereas actually this new framework, this new way of working is, dare I say, actually, uh, from my experience of it quite a, a pleasant process and there'll be many school leaders that will they'll shoot me down for that but actually it's pleasant because it gives this new framework gives curriculum leaders and it gives school leaders the opportunity to showcase some of the work that they're doing to talk about their strategic intentions to talk about their visions for the school and then almost use it as a couple of days to showcase best practice to these offset inspectors so that inspectors can make their own decisions don't get me wrong, though. The experience isn't as beautiful and as lovely as that, and it comes with challenges and pushback. But that is to be expected with a, a, a directorate like Ofsted who are there to make sure that we're providing the best level of education for our children. I think that some of the challenges that we've um, seen in this area certainly is the how uh, Ofsted inspections have evolved to kind of align themselves with our way of working at the moment. So certainly. Um, when Ofsted visits were reintroduced um, towards the kind of autumn term time last year, the experience from schools that, that I personally supported was that it was a really enjoyable experience, actually. Inspectors were coming into schools and they were asking school leaders to tell them about what it is like to provide a level of continuity of education throughout that global pandemic. What's changed a lot now, again, in this new kind of um framework they've got under section eight of, of their inspection legislation where they're going into schools remotely so they're now providing these two-day monitoring visits to schools that are uh, judged as inadequate or require improvement there is of course a level of anxiety that then falls onto school leaders school staff and and everyone really that, that's in and around schools but actually to give offset some credit, the the way that they presented to school leaders about what these visits are going to look like, uh, what they're going to involve, again, it's very much building on this idea of showcasing what it is that school we're doing at the moment. Um, we're certainly seeing in, in some of the visits we've um, been privy to uh, that the themes coming out of these new visits in this term, I keep using this new visit because I, I must stress it is changing a lot, but certainly where we are now, a lot of the questions that, that seem to be coming out uh, that school leaders have been asked is all about kind of what does your remote education look like? How is it that you are, um, how are you providing your curriculums? How are you ensuring that children are supported within schools? And these are questions that school leaders know the answers to because over the past 12 months, they've been working incredibly hard to establish these new remote learning systems. So of course it's a challenge, but actually it's um, it's certainly, and, and I know this is a really kind of easy thing to say, it's certainly not something that I, I'm getting significantly anxious about at the moment, um, but I do recognise that it, it brings real anxiety to school leaders and, and Ofsted are working to address that. And I think that's that's really positive that they are recognising that inspections bring about anxieties for school leaders and head teachers. And the sooner we can move to a position where inspections are seen as these positive experiences, what however far 
distance this is. I think Ofsted have got a really good opportunity at the moment to really look at the way they undertake their visits, learn some of the lessons of the past, but also kind of reflect on the positive experiences that school leaders have had during the kind of um, past event, uh, sorry, the, the visit series that came about in, in autumn and now. So there's some really good opportunities there for both school leaders and inspectors. Well, I'm heartened to hear that there's been some some kind of positive visits and that that things appear to be changing a bit. I had um, Ruth Davies on the podcast last last week, and she was she's the president of the National Association of Head Teachers, and there really feels like an, an appetite for this for bringing all of these um, different aspects of education together to work together. Mm-hmm. And there, there's great opportunity to, to do that well. So, um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I hope we head in that direction. <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we start to wrap up, Lewis, um, you you mentioned a couple of times about excellence and showcasing what excellent safeguarding looks like. Can you mm-hmm. give us some examples? Perhaps somebody who's listening to this might be in a school where excellence isn't the standard that they're experiencing. What would what does that look like and what could people do better? Of course. And I think that um, whilst I've, I've mentioned excellence, I think striving towards excellence is a really good position to be in. I think any school that would consider their safeguarding provision to be excellent um, is, of course, always running the risk of becoming complacent and in as safeguarding evolves to meet the new demands of remote working and uh, kind of the adverse child experiences that our children and young people have been through in the past 12 months, we need to recognise that good safeguarding within schools is where schools have a really, really effective, not just a culture, but a really effective culture of safeguarding and culture of vigilance. And what we mean by that is that safeguarding isn't just something that is done within a school. It is very much the climate of the school. Staff recognise that it is not just the DSL's role to lead safeguarding. This is the job of everyone, every adult, every visitor, every volunteer that is their responsibility to contribute towards the wider mission to keep children safe. So if I was a DSL listening to this, I think the first thing I I always say is to make sure that you have that kind of space, you have that opportunity to be able to reflect on your own practice to ensure that not only the basics are in place, but everyone's doing those basics well, because the basics in safeguarding are providing that safe space for young people, ensuring that staff and visitors and adults, they're all empowered to know that they can not just recognise harm, but report it promptly and report it with the confidence that the DSL is going to do something about it. Because where those basics are in place, where staff are vigilant, where staff have a clear understanding about the context of the school, they know what it feels like to be a child or a young person within that classroom or a child or a young person on that school bus coming into school or walking uh, into school that morning or evening. It puts them in a really strong position to be able to start to build and tailor their safeguarding culture and safeguarding environment to meet the needs of children and young people, not just providing a general generic kind of here's some safeguarding training here's some safeguarding posters best practice in safeguarding is where schools have safeguarding at the center of everything they do every decision that's made by school leaders has that child at the center of it what will the impact be on that child and is it a positive impact and where safeguarding is effective isn't just where schools are making lots of referrals into social care far from but it also isn't where 
schools are making no referrals at all and, and everyone's running around to support children. It's about that balance. It's about being into a position where every single child in that school has trust and confidence in every adult in that school, that if they feel worried, they can share a concern. They know they will be listened to. But then on the flip side of that, school leaders, school staff all have confidence in one another and the systems in place are strong enough and robust enough to ensure that where those concerns and reports are fed through, appropriate action is taken. One point that I really liked that you said there, Lewis, was that um, listening to and seeking out the views of staff and children, finding out if, if the children themselves feel safe. It seems like quite a logical place to start. Is that something you'd recommend as well, like listening to the views of children? Absolutely. On on every level. We talk a lot in safeguarding about the importance of the child's voice, both when we're providing intervention, but also when we're considering different levels of intervention and support for young people. But I think broaden that if I understand the question right we're thinking here about what what how we can use that student and that staff voice to our advantage as a designated safeguarding lead to be able to inform our own kind of decisions about um what different kind of whole school strategies we need to implement to, to provide support what we remember or what we need to remember as, as anyone working in education is that we are in school for a certain amount of time we work with children at a professional level and we we get to know children but we aren't children ourselves and school has certainly changed a lot from um, not just when you and I were at school but even more so just between year seven to year 11 that shift in 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 the way that young people operate the spheres of influence that they associate themselves with is ever changing and this is where our pastoral teams and, and using your pastoral teams to your advantage is so important because it's our pastoral teams that actually um, really get into, they're the ones that have that conversation with young people to understand what, what it is that they, they, they need in terms of support, understanding what are the local risks in the community. Dr. Carleen Furman from the University of Bedfordshire has done a, a, a fantastic, almost revolutionary piece of work around contextual safeguarding. And this concept of understanding and recognising that whilst it's important to target the harm itself that's occurred, it's even more important to understand the context in which that harm's occurred and then provide intervention there. Going back to your question about best practice, that idea of using contextual safeguarding in your approach to supporting young people is, is really key. So an, an example of how a DSL might consider using that would be if you've got a, a child that has been um, assaulted in a park by a group of young boys or girls, we recognise that there's a need there to provide support to the child that's been harmed, the um, offending party. There's a need to kind of make sure that appropriate referrals have been made. There's a need to explore whether there was any kind of external factors, such as was there any knives involved. But actually, there's a need to go that little bit further and start to think as a DSL, well, is, is, is the issue here the child and is the issue the conflict or is there a wider need for us not just to provide intervention to the child but to educate our young people around the risks of carrying knives or the risks of being in a park late at night almost providing almost a targeted approach of support rather than just focusing in on making sure that all the referrals are done all the boxes are ticked mm. a good dsl will go that step further to make sure that the context is explored in the same way that the harm was explored and responded to mm. Very important point. Just as we're starting to wrap up, Lewis, is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we close? 
No, not at all. I think it's um, I'm, I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity to come on and speak about safeguarding because safeguarding, as, as we've said all the way through, it is changing a lot um, and it is a, a particular area of worry for everyone who's involved in safeguarding because you are essentially making decisions about children and young people that that um, that can have really significant uh, impacts on on their own development and their own lives. So I think really embedding that idea of effective well-being support, strong supervision, school leaders giving that space and time to DSLs to allow them to reflect on their own practice is a really, really good starting point to, as we said, creating that culture of vigilance and giving DSLs that space and time and autonomy to be able to go away and put the right things in place with the right support themselves to provide support for young people and children within their schools. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lewis Donald and you can connect with Lewis on Twitter at LDonald underscore DSL on LinkedIn at Lewis Donald. And also Lewis has a podcast called Safeguarding Days that you can find on all Spotify, Apple podcasts, etc., where all good podcasts are found. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Lewis. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Maria. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.